Welcome to the Sunday Morning Linux Review, episode 327, the second reboot, because the first one was, you know, the last episode. So we're rebooting the reboot or something like that. Anyways, I'm joined by Jay LaCroix and, and Tony Bemis. Yes, we are rebooting the reboot, but we, ah, it's, it's scheduling, scheduling, scheduling. You know, it's really been difficult, but we think we got it. Uh, so if you are still listening to us, if you're wondering if you should delete that podcast from your list, no, don't, don't, don't touch it. Just go ahead. We're still here. We're still alive, folks. Um, and we want to bring some more Linux love over to the world. And uh, that's what we're going to do is kind of talk about projects and things like that. So we're changing the format of the channel, um, rightfully so, a few people, and we listen to you. You're right. We were a bit news heavy, and there's plenty of news out there. Uh, so we're going to talk more about the projects we're doing, some of the things we're working on. I post a lot of it on my YouTube channel, but we also just have our little side projects. And uh, I, I, I'm looking to, for those of you who are watching this as a video on the, because we'll upload this to the uh, Sunday Morning Links Review YouTube channel as well. Um, I was looking over because one of the cool projects I was working on is some e-ink displays and things like that. Mm -hmm. But I think we'll let Tony, because me and Jay haven't heard from Tony in a little while. And yep. uh, Tony is the glue that brings us together. He is the original founder, the OG of the SMLR podcast. So, uh, Tony, what's yeah. been going on since uh, March when we did this other episode? <laughs> Holy cow, March. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's been a long time. And like I said, the just scheduling conflict after another. Uh, but I I bought a camper and we did some traveling this summer. Uh, a huge so, uh, camper. Yeah. I mean, I think it's big. <laughs> big enough for the family of five. to, And we almost have our own bedrooms. <laughs> no, mm -hmm. I'm joking. Well, the yeah. kids have their a bedroom, like a separate you know thing way in the back there and uh, and then I was able to work remote, so we traveled uh, for about two months this summer. Wow! And um, it was just from one campground to the next, and uh, and it was a lot of fun. The I what I was what I had expected that I would have uh, problems with bandwidth and doing working remote because I was just going off of a cell modem, but I didn't expect the problems to be so consistent. Oh, uh, it was like every every day it would just it would be slow. I thought that I'd hit one or two campgrounds where I'd have a good connection, but no, nah, I never really had a good connection. Are you uh, trying so, to tell me that that travel life that I see so glamorized um, that you can be the remote worker that travels around America may be a little bit of an exaggeration? <laughs> oh yeah, a bit of an exaggeration, uh, and then you you end up having no no weekends. Because uh, if you're not going to stay at a campground for more than a week, like if you're going to say, I'm going to stay at one for a week and then I'm going to stay at another for a week, well, that means your weekends are always driving from one to the next. Ah, uh, yeah. And then you're working. And then, you know, so it's it's nice to be able to say, okay, I'm done with work. Let's go out and do a campfire. Let's go for a bike ride around the campground. But uh, other than that, it's it's like, eh. So did you just use a hotspot or did you put some infrastructure in the uh, camper? Uh, I did uh, a combination. So I had okay. a, a little hotspot. Actually, I have it right here. It's um, I bought a used uh, ATT one. And then they have a code you can stick into it that you can uh, unlock it. Uh, oh. So I have Google Fi and I was able to just stick in a data-only SIM card. Um, but the reason I went with this one is because on the bottom has little antenna ports. So you can oh. hook up an external antenna. So that gave me a little bit better of a signal. Um, but then I went from that to I have a, a little 
Adam PC that I set up as a PFSense firewall. And uh, then I could control, you know, I could have my own Wi-Fi. I had a, a, a Linksys router and I had a eight port gigabit switch. Um, and I could, could let people connect, I could do things, but then I can control how much bandwidth they use, uh, mainly just by either letting them connect or not, you know? Yeah. So the kids, if they uh, wanted to get on and do a couple things, I would say, okay, you can today, but then I'd turn the firewall roll off or uh, yeah, and stop them from connecting for like the next day or something like that. That's actually kind of cool, uh, you know, to start building it out like that. I think that's uh, pretty neat. I was wondering though, did you put a streaming media server in the camper or is that on the project list? No, nah, I did that. Uh, so I have a Raspberry Pi, uh, actually because I'm not in the camper right now, I, I have it next to me. Oh. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a Raspberry Pi 4, 8 gig. Uh, it's running Plex and it's, the Velcro to a uh, uh, eight terabyte hard drive. Okay. And um, so what's nice about Plex and uh, Roku is that I can say block, uh, block the Roku from internet, connecting to the internet. Uh, but Plex, if the, the server is local and say you've already connected at one point, so I, I have to allow it to connect for uh, for the first connection. And then, and then on the firewall rule, block all connections out. It will know that there's a local server and it'll connect to it locally. Oh, okay. So I really just did a copy of my Plex here and took it with me. And, uh, and so all the TV shows I had been recording, all of the movies and things like that, I was able to just bring it all with me. That's really, really cool. Good. I, I, yeah. I just expected that to be the answer because I was like, you know, when you have a bunch of, is you you have kids, but you also have young kids specifically, mm -hmm. and they still want to watch their shows. And uh, with bandwidth being limited while you're traveling, as you said, that can certainly be a challenge. But that's awesome. I like that. Yeah, we did a test to let them run Netflix for two hours, and it was like four gigs of data. Ooh, and I'm like, yeah, that's not happening again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you hit the uh, with the Google Fi plan. I mean, I imagine you're on the unlimited plan, but they 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 throttle after a certain amount. So this has been a big mm -hmm. uh, contention with a lot of these companies. Like, here's your unlimited data that gets throttled. By the way, we just it's in the fine print down at the bottom in a really six point font. <laughs> <It's> just... <laughs> right. Yeah, and you know, and I I did switch over to that. So it was 22 gigs of data, and then after that is throttled. But I expected them to throttle from 4G to 3G, mm. and they throttled from 4G to like I I my connection speed was. 128k oh wow it was like horrible like things would not work like nothing would work for me i mean i remember 120k was fast but that was 20 years ago when we got our you know isdn line up to 128k but this is that's just exactly. a sad that's sad noises if uh you have that here in 2021 yeah so then you have to go back into your account and say okay now allow me to have full connection but give me uh you know, but then I'll pay the $10 a gig after that. And then I end up, I think one month I had a $200 bill because Ooh. of that. Yeah. Ouch. So, so my head, my original plan in March, I did the pre-order for, uh, for Starlink. And at that time, uh, they weren't allowing you to like change your service location. Uh, but, and, and the whole time it said, it'll be like mid to late, uh, uh, 21 is when I could have it in Michigan. 
And then when it came to the beginning of the summer, I was reading and saw a couple of posts out there that now they had set up where you can change your location, but it takes a couple hours. So my plan was if I had gotten the dish, then when I'm moving from one campground to the other, when we're packing up to leave, I would just say, okay, my new location is over there. And then by the time I get there, it would be working. Well, that'd be cool. Yeah. Well, by the end of the summer, we, we ended up not getting it yet and they never shipped it out. And then my wife got a, a teaching job. So now we're, we're at home and uh, we're not, you know, the kids are in school now and we're at home. So we're not going to be doing any traveling throughout the fall and winter and spring. Uh, so I just canceled the, the uh, Starlink connection. Uh, not even one good fall trip to Northern Michigan. <laughs> uh, I wish I mean, we <laughs> might be able to do like a three day thing, but um and for those of you who don't know, uh, Northern Michigan is beautiful in the fall. So one of my favorite times, and probably Jay's as well, uh, to go up there and just uh, yeah. see the colors change. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so that was my my main summer project. Um, I still had all my infrastructure at home, running my own home lab stuff. And uh, right before we left on one of the trips, I broke my, uh, um, my next cloud. Oh, I was trying to do an upgrade. I was letting like the automated upgrade system work and it just crapped out and would not work. So uh, I didn't have time to work on it until uh, about a week ago. And then uh, it took me about three hours. And what I had to do is because I was on such an old version, I was like a 19. I had to uh, upgrade from 19 to 20 and then 20 to 21 and then 21 to 22, like in order like that. Um, and then it ended up working. So, uh, now I'm back up on online. Yay. The, Yay. um, that's always a, you know, the worry about next cloud and things like that and supporting your own infrastructure when it's critical, it becomes, if you, if you have a job and it's one of the reasons I don't run it for my job is because I have a job fixing so many other things. I don't mind sometimes outsourcing that to someone else till they get yeah. a little better on, uh, updates. So it's always a little bit of a challenge. Mm -hmm. Has your uh, TrueNAS system kept going? You were yeah, that's still random issues with that. I and I remember that was one of the last things we talked about. I believe was still some of the uh, random hard drive issues you were having. Yes, and it ended up because it was those uh, what is it called shielded drives? Oh, it was SMRs. Uh, yeah, or SMRs. Yeah, and uh, I ended up removing all those drives, and you know, one at a time. I was swapping them out one at a time, let them rebuild and everything. Uh, and so I got all uh, enterprise uh, drives in there, and it works great now. Uh, awesome. the, the problem, though, is the storage was almost full. So all those shielded drives I had sitting around, I built a separate Plex server with it. And, and so that's up and running. And uh, so we're all good now. It's one of the ideal uses for those is because they offer the higher density storage at a lower price. Um, they're terrible for RAID, but for something like Plex where it's write once and read many, they are probably a better uh, solution. They're still not a great system and the controversy is not over with those because there's there those are uh, ticking time bombs in mm. lots of people's NASAs because it's only when you start having to resilver or move a bunch of data around that they actually start causing all kinds of problems. So I don't think that's the last we've heard of them. There's plenty of them spinning somewhere causing or haven't caused a problem yet, but someone's about to have a bad day. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
you know what i found with plex is uh so streaming uh and it has to have a, a transcoding uh folder to transcode to yeah then you you still can't use those drives for transcoding otherwise it'll crash oh really uh, or because oh, or it'll be a combination right of yeah. transcoding and then i have the dvr feature with a uh, home run hd home run if those are both trying to run at the same time then it'll crash the hard drive or, or the io yeah will just crash so what i ended up doing is i put i built a um uh eight gig uh ram drive and said just use that for transcoding and uh, so transcoding is really fast now awesome because it's just all on ram and i have uh 24 gigs of ram on that server uh, so it works out good very cool yeah well jay, what about you guys yeah. yeah jay you have an announcement that i don't know if tony knows oh he, oh he doesn't know oh oh he, he might may not know. i don't know he may not know okay mm -hmm. um so as far as what i've been working on you know I, I would love to talk about like cool projects and things but i put a lot of those on the on pause temporarily because I put in notice at my um, current day job and I am going to go solo now. Mm. So, um, I mean, a lot of people will read that as, you know, Jay's doing YouTube full time. Well, I mean, kind of, yes, because that is what I'm doing right now. But there's bigger things that I'm um, looking for. I'm always going to do YouTube until I get tired of it. And I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon if it ever does. So <laughs> I'm having too much fun with that. But, um, you know, there's business services that I want to get into and independent consulting and things like that. That's also going to drive revenue. It's just, it just got to be really hard because, you know, I have my day job and then the YouTube channel, my company just kind of um, started to just grow exponentially. And then it became really hard to juggle the two. So I really love my day job. I mean, the company's great. It's just working two jobs. Mental health is really important. So, oh, yeah. you know, working that many hours it just gets to the point where i'm like you know i just need you know one of them has to go i don't want to let either one go and i can't let go the thing that i built because you know corporate jobs are are good as long as you work for a good company but those jobs can come and go and you never know if like the business that you're setting up if that's a one-time thing if you could repeat that success again so obviously that's not something that i can give up so right now i i just finished like two massive recording sessions like i recorded every episode of the proxmox series in one day because i actually scripted it over several days before that and then i just sat down and recorded everything i recorded probably i don't know how many episodes of linux essentials and then i did like a um, two other recording sessions this week and then i look at my my folder i have like 300 gigs of unedited video files right now mm -hmm. Um, so basically the idea is the first couple of weeks, cause October 4th is my first day solo. Then I could, you know, focus on the business relationships and contacts and things and kind of keep that going while the videos are ahead of schedule. I think at this point, if I was to spread them out, I could probably last a month of content with what I have recorded right now, but honestly, I'm not going to spread it out. I'm probably just going to make it like two weeks and then, um, I think it's going to get to a point where I'll have like a video a day or maybe two a day sometimes <laughs> until things get to a status quo. But there's all kinds of, um, I'll probably talk more about this later. I have other companies I'm working with already for partnerships and new sponsors coming on. So it's kind of surreal to me. It kind of doesn't feel real like this, this hobby just ended up becoming um, how I support myself. So 
I knew this day would probably come. I just honestly didn't expect it to happen so soon. So that's the majority of what I've been working on. Um, also, there's a possibility of two books that my publisher is um, and I are talking about. I'm not going to say what they are right now, and you know, in case they don't happen, I don't want to get anyone's hopes up. But um, the idea is like I might start writing again this winter, and then um, after that one's done, and then there's another one that they're looking at right after that if all goes well. So, and your Ubuntu book is doing really well. I think that's that's oh, important. Gosh. The catalyst for that yes. is because right. if you didn't know, and you can find yep. us on LearnLinux.tv, Jay's Ubuntu book is doing really, really well. I'll just throw it out there. Jay's yes. being, um, you know, not, a little bashful about it maybe, but uh, I'll, it's a good book. I highly recommend you read it. So thank you. That's awesome. Yeah. I appreciate that. It, you know, it's it's interesting about how that worked out because it was such a difference when I wrote the second edition of Mastering Ubuntu Server versus the new one. Um, I had far fewer YouTube subscribers back then, and it did okay. I think it took like, I want to say a year just to pay off the advance. So it wasn't really that profitable, honestly. And I think after about two years, I mean, it did well, it had almost all five-star reviews, about, had like 50 five-star reviews or something like that after two years. And then this new book has only been out or actually hasn't been out one year yet and is already at 76 five-star reviews and is already mm. paid off, it paid off the advance in one quarter, which is just exponentially um, higher than the last one. So, I mean, at first with the second one, I was kind of thinking, eh, I don't know. I mean, I put all this work into this for six months and there's barely a return. And I, I mean, that's money's not the reason why I'm doing it because I actually love to write and I just love to get my knowledge out there. But I still also feel like you have to have at least some kind of compensation for the amount of work that goes into a book. Um, but there just, it wasn't that. So the third book, I was like, I'll give it another, another chance. I mean, I meant to say the third edition, that was my fifth book overall, but um, I'll give it another chance. And I, I was expecting it to do better because my subscriber count at that time, I think it was at 150,000 on YouTube and now it's getting close to 200,000. So when I'm talking on my channel and talking about my book, I have a I have a lot more ears on that. So I really think that my audience is um, what made that successful. So um, cool. I'm so ecstatic that this um, is a thing. And then and I look, I get the final copy in my hands. I'm like, this is huge. Like this book is thick. Like I actually wrote <laughs> 700 pages. Oh my god. Um, and yeah, I don't know how I managed to do that, but I did it. So yeah, here we are. I think there's something to be said, though, going back to like you uh, and, and some of the ways I work as well as being an independent creator, as opposed to um, when companies have creators that are attached to them. Uh, there was a good discussion of why like Darknet Diaries is doing so well versus uh, he was on another podcast with called That Malicious Life. Now, That Malicious Life is specifically sponsored by I believe is that one is sponsored by someone, uh, one of the other companies. But there's something to be said just in general about the success of an independent creator where you're kind of very free to do as you please. You know what right. I mean? And uh, when you're you know, want to dive into Linux topics, like you said, just share your knowledge or share these projects that we talk about. Um, there's people that are interested in it. And there's not, uh, even with myself, uh, this is one of the reasons I can never really, or no one would buy my company, I should say, because Tom does what Tom wants. That's one of my rules. And if I am right. interested in spending two days 
playing with some uh, overlay network called Nebula because I wanted to, but there's no business play for it. We don't consult on it. I just thought it was neat and, and wanted to do an in-depth video on it. So I did, and people found it interesting, which is great. But that's not something when you're uh, being... When you have people trying to get you aligned to a profit going, all right, this is a product we offer. And this is something you could talk about how this gets integrated. Um, even if it's not directly advertised, it's kind of, there's more sway into what you end up uh, creating content for. So I agree. I unswayed I, by that going, that looks cool yeah. is the only precursor to whenever the next video is made. <laughs> like we just start yeah. with that looks cool. We're going to go do that. <laughs> and yeah, and it's we really that. cool to take like, you basically have like some videos that you do because maybe one's newsworthy and it's like, you got to yeah. cover this and it's very interesting to you, but you want to tell people your opinion about it. And then a product that you get and you, you think there's going to be a return on that because even though you're just doing it for fun. And then another video that, you know, probably not very many people are going to watch this one and it's going to have like almost zero return, but I want to do it so bad. Yep. So I'm just going to do it because it's a guilty pleasure. So you could kind of do that from time to time. I think the biggest thing for me that's the most amazing about our time period, we kind of take it for granted how I, I'm going to say how easy it is to create content, but it's not easy. Um, obviously, it's a lot of work. I, I put a lot of work into this. But what I mean by easy is that, you know, it wasn't that long ago that if you were like a singer, a, a musician, or you had a band, there was like a 0% chance that anybody would ever hear you other than maybe your <laughs> local bar, unless you nailed a recording contract and convinced a record company that you're a profitable um, band. And then you might get an album out there. But right now, I mean, you could put content out there. If you can record it, if you could draw it, if you could write it, you could just put it out there. There's nothing stopping you. Um, I think rec recording companies had to change and pivot because you know they know they're really not necessary anymore. Um, so they have to add other services and become like social media influencers instead of you know focusing on getting CDs on store shelves. Mm. You want to get a video out there and tell people your opinion. Um, you don't have to like record it on a VHS tape and then make a bunch of them and then just start mailing them out. You could just put it on YouTube or one of the other services. Um, we, if you want to write a book, you know, I have a publishing contract, but you don't need that. In, in fact, you'd make more money without that. For me with ADHD, it's like having those uh, tight schedules on the book really helps me because it's like, you got to get it done by this. It's like, I can't procrastinate. I got to get this done. Then you have authors like uh, Michael Lucas, who does it himself and doesn't have anyone, you know, cracking the whip. And I, I would argue he probably does better, you know, for that reason, because it's under his control. But I think I have full control of the YouTube channel. Like I, you know, obviously hyper-focus on that and just pump out content. And I love writing, but I also enjoy the the schedule and the deadlines and things. So yeah, it's nice nowadays, to have trying to get it done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like now more than ever, the the fact that you could just put a podcast out there just because you woke up in the morning and decided that that's what you want to do without no thought at all, impulsively, not saying that's what we do, obviously, but it's like, I want to do a thing. I'm going to go do it right now. Um, just Google it. You find out how to do it. We've never been in a situation in in the world where we could just get content out there. Um, and that's very transformative. I think it's we're lucky that uh, we, we can do that. So um, it's just really exciting to just be able to, you know, work for a goal. And it took me a long time to get to this point. So a lot of hard work went into that. But if you want to put the hard work into it, there's nothing stopping you. There's nothing stopping anyone, actually. 
Yeah, yeah. I agree. Definitely. Yeah, uh, it's really cool. Fun world we live in right now. Um, on to yeah. a couple of Linux things. You yeah, did yeah. a video on SSH, didn't you? I did several. And there there was one where I, I did public, uh, excuse me, public key authentication. I also did like before this one, like a whole video that was really long. That was like the open SSH guide. But then I did one recently that was just about public key authentication. And I'm planning on doing another one that's going to be about how to manage multiple SSH keys and like best practices. Because... I feel like a lot of people, they don't really know that. Like the, when you're at a certain level, you're starting out, you have one SSH key and it's, just, it's your one key for everything, which is convenient until that key, if it ever leaks, the public key gets exposed. Then every server that you've used that on, you're going to have to find out quick which one, which ones those were so you can just uh, revoke that key. And mm. how do you do that if you're you know working for a managed service provider and you have like uh, 60 clients and, and things like that? So I think... What I'm going to do, um, hopefully I don't get hyper-focused on this and start recording again because I really need to edit stuff. Mm. Um, it's like, what do you do? How do you manage that? How do you switch between keys and um, you know, protect your keys? And what does the workflow look like? Because I think that's kind of one of those things that a lot of people out there just don't cover as much. So mm -hmm. that's going to be something that I'm really hoping to tackle pretty soon. You know what I discovered? Uh, oh, it was probably six or seven years ago was uh ssh.config and mm -hmm. uh and that's where you can put in all those kind of options uh so you can do short names for servers that's generally what i use it for is to yeah. give me a short name for a server but then if you have a different username that you log into that server with you just stick that in the along you know in that section of the ssh config and then it'll automatically log you in as that username and yep. then you can do the same thing with the, with your SSH keys. So if you yep. use different SSH keys for different servers, then you put that along in there and uh, and then it'll connect through. And then what was really cool, what I figured out this, uh, uh, this spring was you could put in a um, like proxy information in there. So if you're going to say, anytime I connect to anything that is, um, you know, it, you know, it's like a, asterisk.scrubbingcenter.com or something like that. You could put that in and then you can say, I have to proxy through this SSH server. And then, so anytime you go to connect to something with that full domain name, then it'll proxy you through and you can go right into it. Yes. And you can even so, use proxy chains on it as well, um, mm -hmm. which is easy enough to set up. And I've done a video on proxy chains and there's somewhere I'm going with a lot of this too. The, um, one of the unusual things I got in a discussion with is they're now mandating a lot of uh, SSH key usage on things like switch management and things like that for insurance reasons. The new insurance provider oh. rules uh, for compliance are requiring it. And I'm realizing the more I talk to people, how few people understand fully how SSH keys work. Um, and of course, uh, during the discussion in the home lab show, um, and more people have commented again on that video and two people DM'd me directly uh, on LinkedIn because Jay, they want you to do a video at some point uh, on SSH uh, certificates, using certificates. With yep. SSH. And I, I saw that comment, actually. I wrote it down. I totally yeah. wrote that down. It's um, gonna, I know it's in the future. Now, get everything else edited first. Uh, um, but it's actually something I don't use that might be interesting. Um, but I did yep. also, In uh, you may be interested, I didn't realize that there's a couple... Uh, 
native to Linux. It's called, I think, NOCD, uh, where you can use mm -hmm. port knocking to turn SSH on and off. And I did, I, I know it's been, I know the concept of port knocking has been around forever. I've never seen it easy to implement is, um, so I thought, you know, there's all kinds of fun yeah. stuff on there, but managing your SSH is still a pretty big thing because it's still a common spot where we see, uh, people leaving things fully exposed or password right. authentication in there. Um, but for things like switch management, now that, you know, this was a discussion I had this morning with some other IT people, um, the insurance company is finally sick of paying out for all the, <laughs> the what they refer to as errors and omissions. And basically every time some company gets attacked and they're starting to want infrastructure verifiably locked down and SSH keys is a popular way to comply with uh, the lockdown for the interfaces. And mm -hmm. like Tony said, the proxying part of it is where you turn off the web interface um, on things, SSH in proxy the web interface uh, to another port. It's another way to get around so you don't have to have it publicly exposed at all. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I may be diving a little bit into that topic myself. Uh, it, it's yeah, it's all about yeah. better ways to securely manage these things. One thing that um, is really, I mean, SSH in general, I feel is is the is one of the hardest things for newcomers. Yes, in Linux because. Um, you know, I had one employee that that was asking me, you know, why is it so hard to find out why I'm not able to get into the server? And I, I told her, well, the reason is because if if you get too much information about why you can't connect, that's going to help people that are doing the wrong things know what they sh what what's not working and what is, and help them get into it quicker. So there's a little bit of abstraction there. But another issue that people have run into that I've seen. And, you know, they'll have like an SSH config. I use that too, um, which is great. But when you set up a new server that you haven't actually added to that yet, depending on how the order you do things in, and let's just say you have like a bunch of SSH keys in your .SSH folder, then the SSH client, if, it, if you don't tell it to do anything else, it's going to try every single key in that .SSH folder. And a lot of mm. servers are just going to flat out lock you out before you even have a chance to connect to the first time because it's just going to keep trying them. And especially on AWS, and I know many others, other platforms are configured that after a certain number of attempts, it's going to block you. So if it allows 10 attempts and you have like 30 keys and it tries the first, it tries the first 20, um, yeah. if you get to the one that <laughs> it wants, which is like the last one in order, then you can't get in. And then you have to buzz a, a colleague to, you know, kind of um, help you out there. Obviously, there's different ways of handling that, but there's all of these um complexities. And then what I generally tell people to do is, um, you know, have someone else that has access to the server tail the authorization log while the person is trying to SSH in. And almost every time you'll find out exactly why you can't do that. Yep. Usually it'd be like SSH key permissions is, a, is probably the number one that I find. But there's all these different things that I think people just kind of struggle with. And it's, it's yeah, you know, I, 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 help with that. I knew you did some videos on it. I thought I'd bring it up and something uh, I do like with my config file and not my full SSH folders. I don't want my keys tied to this, but I use sync thing with a symbolic link tied to the config file. That way sync thing mm -hmm. is, is a folder and symbolic link that gets, uh, is where I want it to be. That way I'm not pointing sync thing at my SSH folder. That's a mistake people do make, um, right. which of course you could limit the keys, but then if you added a new key and you didn't limit that key, that's a recipe for disaster. Symbolic link is a safer way to do it and less likely for Tom to make a mistake syncing his keys everywhere, which even though it's a private server, I don't really want my keys synced everywhere. Well, you're going to be doing it differently pretty soon anyway, actually. Yes, um, because by the time, you know, I get done with you and we have an Ansible session, you're going to be using Ansible yes. for that. I can promise you that. 
I will be, but in the short term in that's still a good so, yeah. Well, the other thing too, you didn't mention, did you know you can use emojis in it? So when I SSH into like my free PBX, I type in free uh, and it finishes PBX so it'll use autocomplete and I got the little phone icon next to it. I, I filled <laughs> mine with, I filled mine with little symbols and it's just funny because uh, I like it. So I, 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 I like when you can, I want once someone told me you can put emojis in the uh, config file, I'm like, what i can ssh <laughs> to emoji oh this is cool so um when i do some of the servers i sometimes will do it it also looks cool when you're doing a video and there's uh emojis at the end of the servers you're walking into <laughs> makes them more identifiable so yeah <laughs> i put emojis in my ansible and regretted it um it actually worked out really well for a while and i had it send a message via telegram when a server's provisioned and it would have like a green check check mark if it was successful and then a red exclamation mark emoji if it wasn't and that worked just fine until i upgraded my debian servers to debian 11 and for whatever reason i cannot understand i don't know if it's a bug in the package or the versions that they have in there ansible can't run they can't send or actually it can run it just can't send messages anymore because as soon as it encounters an emoji it just the the um whatever library i imported to do that just crashes it works on every other distro though and um, I'm like, this is weird. And then, of course, Debian installation has the package installed for emoji. But <laughs> it, for whatever reason, it just throws up its hands. And I've, I've run into some issues sometimes where maybe it's not supported in some place. I wonder, because emojis are like a, a certain uh, encoding, like it was a UTF-8 or something. I wonder if for some reason that's the package either missing or, uh, or maybe it has to be uh, a module for Ansible to accept it? I don't know. There is a module. Um, I want to say it was TWX was the one, but what's interesting is I upgraded from Debian 10 to Debian 11. I don't remember anything being removed, but, you know, of course, that, that could have happened. But, you know, it wasn't mm. a new install. It was working fine. It's just as soon as going to Debian 11, um, just didn't. And... Even then, what's also weird is that the required packages for emojis is in Ansible. So mm -hmm. when it runs, it's going to just make sure that those are installed even if they get removed. But um, mm. I, I want to say it's a bug because it just has every warning sign of it being a bug. I should probably look yeah. into that file a bug report, but yeah. I can't put emojis in Ansible and someone's going to say, just just download that. That's, that's not a real <laughs> We're closing your pull request, sir. <laughs> don't do that <laughs> why would you do that like look it's linux we that part of a lot of the things we do is why would we do that because we can <laughs> can you put um can you put html html tags in it in your message because that's um, that'd be another way is that if you have say you have your own website and you just throw a couple icons on there and then say uh here's a html you know image ing oh. tag and then have it just bring up those and then you can have custom icons and logos and whatever come through you have to be careful with that you might be creating a project for me um <laughs> but it, it, it's in json right now and i don't remember if it was because that's what it has to be in or if it's if it's an option i, I should look at that and see actually that's a good suggestion i was thinking like the the uh message the body of the message when it's sent I mean, I have a, I have a couple staging servers that I just run experiments on, so I guess there's only one way to find out. Yeah, yeah, well, that would that's definitely pretty cool. <laughs> I could put All an animated right. GIF image anytime it fails. I can have like a computer exploding, <laughs> right? A GIF of a like exploding server or something oh, anytime an it fails. GIFs. That'd be great. There you go, animated yeah. GIFs. That's what we really need. 
because that's the solution. <laughs> memes. If he could generate memes on the fly, the, the this is fine meme <laughs> and have the name of the server. <laughs> or the why you no work meme or something. Why you no work. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that'll oh be my, my uh, anything I build will have to have memes as responses. I think I like that as an idea. <laughs> I should just hook it into Minecraft and have him verbally tell me that there's a problem. Yeah. Yeah, that would actually. Really I can cool. see your. I can see your Minecraft behind you. That's that looks pretty cool on your, uh, on the camera here. He's fun. He's yeah. fun. Did, did you see the April Fool's video I did? No, I missed it. Oh yeah, yeah you should go back and watch that one. He programmed Minecraft to uh, do a review essentially, and it's fun. It's a great video. <laughs> so there, there's actually two that I did with him as a as a review, but then the one I did for April Fools, I just told everyone. Um, you know, some, it was the title at first, I changed it later, but it's something like a Debian review or whatever, um, just to get people to click on it. They got a Debian review, um, but they also got something completely different and unlike anything else I've done on the channel, which got a lot of people talking. It was, um, mm. I, I had special effects that I had to try to figure out how to do. Like I, I had a um, scene where I'm being dragged across the floor. So of course I have like a tripod over me and then my son just pulling my arms and then there was no sound effects, so we get a towel and a boot, and we just kind of like um, press the boot down on the towel and just drag it across the towel to create a dragging mm -hmm. sound effect. And um, it was just—I had way too much fun with that. It was—it was, it was a guilty cool. pleasure, I think. For sure, it was—it was—I it was, was amused. So, and he had Wendell <laughs> from Level One Techs involved. So, yep. <laughs> yeah. Fun times for sure. Well, I've been working on a few storage projects. Um, Tony stopped by the office and that's what kicked off the uh, recording today. You know, because like I said, Tony's the glue that holds us together and brings us back together. And uh, we have 108 18 terabyte hard drives in total all stacked up. Well, they're in servers now that are all on the uh, desk and get ready to be delivered to the client. Um, so I have been while doing that, diving into a lot of storage topics. And I've actually been communicating back and forth with the team over at 45 Drives. So anyone who follows their channel noticed they may have released some videos and they referenced me in them. Uh, there was a back and forth exchange that's been going on. Of They wanted, they, they like the fact that, you know, everyone just wants a number for a benchmark, but storage isn't a number. Storage, maybe you have a volume of data that is a number, but the benchmarking depends on your use case. And I had done some videos on how some of the benchmarking tools work, specifically FIO, and why it's not exactly right to just say, this is the benchmark that works for you. Because in Tony's case, for example, if you're streaming Plex, you want a different profile configured for how you lay out your storage than for someone who is maybe doing a high-speed database application, how you write the uh, block sizes and everything else. Uh, so they went deeper and real deep because 45 Drives has a bunch of uh, engineering experts and dove into that topic, which of course, I've been diving deep because TrueNAS Scale is out now. Uh, well, it's in beta one, so it's closer to being a release, but it's, I would say their beta one has been really solid. I've been editing all and using it for workloads and been overall impressed with it. Uh, so uh, my time has been greatly tied up, not just since March, but just in more recently, really, uh, with diving deep into a whole series of storage servers. And then we're also gonna be answering the question, how do you configure that many drives? Because um, there are some interesting problems you run into if you take 60 drives and put them into one giant ZFS VDEV. Um, the width of the VDEVs is kind of a mysterious thing. It doesn't come up a lot in the topics because not everyone is dealing with 
large volumes of drives. So I'm going to be diving into why it's a bad idea to have VDEVs wider than 10, or at least why I think it is, and uh, going back and forth. Because you, even though it lets you create them, uh, there are some challenges. And one of them is kind of an interesting one. If you have 10 drives and one of those 10 drives go bad, um, or more than 10 drives, it'll start reading the parity information from all the other drives and putting the drive back together. It'll oversaturate the drives and cause the other one to pause. And there, if I'm not mistaken, roughly depending on the speed of the drives, exceeding 12 drives, and you can put all 60 of them, for example, in one VDEV, will so oversaturate the drive, it may never rebuild. <laughs> that Because it keeps pausing and the other ones start over again. And there's this kind of loop and they, I believe it's called the ZFS death spiral. Holy cow. Because people didn't usually have shelves of 60 drives, it's not like this was encountered all the time. Now that drive shelves keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger and more affordable to do something like that, because, I mean, while this is an expensive project to buy 108 18 terabyte drives, it's not as expensive as you might think to build out this much storage. And companies are, it's becoming more and more common. So you kind of have to start thinking about how you lay those things out, how you put them together um, and why you should split things up. So it, it's going to be a fun dive into there. And also Wendell from Level and Tex has been uh, diving into storage things and covering it kind of too. We're all just trying to get the knowledge out there so people better understand how all of this works. Um, he's more brave than me because he also took a look at Windows storage spaces and it was sad. It was hot garbage. And Wendell couldn't, you know, he, he really put some effort into it and found some disappointing problems. <laughs> he couldn't get it to work the way it should work at any level of performance. Um, mm. But of course, his performance problems are interesting because he's building arrays, large arrays of MVME drives. So he's got a completely different first world problem than uh, large debt. Uh, wow. Turns out there's some pipelining problems of trying to get that much data lined up with the number of cores um, and the uh, PCI lanes. So you guys remember MVME is going to run over PCI lanes. And uh, Linus earlier this year built a server that couldn't handle um, that many PCI lanes. They actually had a genuine problem where despite having what seemed like enough PCI lanes, when you try to pipeline that much data and you're pipelining it using... Um, you have to coordinate the driver with the network interface and with Samba to get the pipeline to go through to actually be able to process at that speed. And it wouldn't. And there's a lot of reasons why it wouldn't. And there was uh, there was some deep dives they did into it. So it's not just about faster storage. We're now running into uh, PCI lane bus limitations at this it's insane where we're going with storage. It's kind of fun though. At the same time, these are, wow. I love yeah. really diving into some of that and going, how do we, how do we pipe? Cause I got some 20, we're setting our network up right now. We built a 25 gig network, but obviously you bond a few of them together and you have faster, or if you go for a full hundred gig network setup, and this is common in a data center, obviously, but uh, these 25 gig cards are like, I think I paid $120 for them. The prices are coming down. You can buy a 25 gig switch brand new from Unify for $900. That's not cheap. But now you're getting a 25 gig switch with four 25 gig ports. And I think it's got 48 10 gig ports on there. That's within the realm of reason for a small business that if you needed high speed. Um, so it's uh, those are some of the topics I've been diving into. So combination of the network engineering side along with the um, other side. So that's uh, it's been a fun. It's been a lot of fun. I love all this stuff. Uh, that's what gets me up every day. Keep playing with it and keep making videos on it and talking tech. And then, of course, someone always has to put in the comments, you're wrong, <laughs> which we're, we're geeks and we have to prove them right because, you know, 
Uh, I was actually laughing about this. I have two interviews with uh, Dan Brer that I've done, and maybe we'll do another one. He's a uh, person who sits on the board. He's one of the people who ratified uh, Cat 6 and Cat 7. He's actually one of the uh, people. So when people wanted to dive deep into how the standards are actually made, um, I said, why not? Let's Because someone said I was wrong about something. I'm like, oh, I... It turns out Dan actually argued with them in the comments and then messaged me and says, can I be on your channel? I really want to get these people set straight. And I'm like, well, of Ooh. course you came up wow. with, well, that's how that interview came to be. He watched my video and he said, no, you got the gist of it. Like you're basically right, but you don't have the details. Let me give you the details of exactly how we do the testing, how we create the standards, how all of this works and how that person is right and wrong, but mostly wrong. And boy, we had a great time doing that. I love deep dives like that. So people really, um, my favorite comment on there is someone said, I took a class on, uh, in college related to this. And they go, Dan gave a better dissertation than I, in your hour video, I learned more than I did doing a class in at college on this. And I'm like, well, then that's success to me. Like here's the guy that sits on the standards board. He's really well-spoken and puts it together. So much like Jay, this is the whole independent creator thing where, um, why not? I mean, I have nothing to benefit other than the deep amount of knowledge that got shared, uh, on that. So those are all the little projects I've been working on and uh, fun stuff like that. So that's cool. Uh, so we are going to make our best attempt because we are having to wind this up now. We are making our best attempt to make this a regular show uh, and a regular time. So stay tuned. Thank you for all of you that did take the time to uh, listen to us that didn't delete us off your favorite podcast application and are just shocked to get a notice that we are back. So <laughs> we're uh, going to put some effort into this and start maybe yep. uploading it to YouTube and everything else. Uh, we do look forward to your feedback and uh, thank you everyone for joined us. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Take care.